Lord Jesus, we ask that you would come and speak to the hearts of your people. Lord, this is not about me and words that I say. This is not about whether we like what you have to say or not. This is about hearing from you and having your word transform our hearts. So come, Lord Jesus, we pray. You are already here. You have already been moving, and we pray that you would just continue. As always, Lord, may I decrease and you increase this morning. May your people be different because we've been in your presence, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing in our Sermon on the Mount series. Uh, we've been walking through Jesus' most famous set of teachings. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is three chapters, Matthew 5 through Matthew chapter 7. Uh, today we're going to finish up Matthew chapter 5. It's been six weeks, I think, to make it through this chapter. Uh, don't worry, things start to pick up a little bit after this. But uh, let me recap a little bit in case you haven't been here. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is coming, and this is kind of his introductory teaching. He's been going around to small towns, place to place, but this is his first time having a large gathering of people together. And the message that he is bringing them, if I could boil it down, is this. He's been going around time to time, like introducing himself and telling people, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. And now these people, their curiosity was piqued, and they've, they've begun to follow him. And so he sits down and he tells them this. The king, God, is doing something new. This kingdom that God is bringing in is not like anything we've ever seen before. This is completely different from what God has done before. The kind of people that God is inviting in and actually trying to create in this kingdom is a different kind of people than what they had been taught to think of. And so he started with the Beatitudes and going through, blessed are these kinds of people. And if you remember, we walked through the blessed are's, and most of those they would have scratched their heads at and been like, but these are the weak, these are the lowly, these aren't the, the proud, the righteous, the perfect as we think of it. These people admit that they have problems and they, they mourn and they weep and they would have been like, this is, this is not what we expected. The king is coming and he is doing something new. There is a new kind of righteousness that's required if you're going to partner with the king in his new kingdom work. And, and so we've been working through this series of lessons where Jesus starts with going, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've been taught that this is what God wants from you, that this is the way that you are meant to live, but I tell you, it's different than what you think. You have been taught, some of these for hundreds of years, that this is what God requires, but I tell you, it's something new. It's something different. Jesus is, is redefining the righteousness that's required to partner with God to do this new kingdom work. And all the ones that we've been looking at so far and we'll look at today that you've heard it said, but I tell you, deal with our relationships with each other. You've heard that it was said, here's how you should treat each other. Just don't murder, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, it goes much deeper than that. How is your heart towards your brother and sister? It's this redefining of righteousness. And so we pick up halfway through. Jesus has six of those. You've heard it said, but I tell you. We've looked at three so far, and we're going to actually look at three today and just kind of wrap this piece up. 
starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it's God's throne, or by the earth because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your word yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Okay, so let's start to break this down kind of piece by piece. Jesus knew the audience that he was speaking to. The, the Jewish audience that he was speaking to was an incredibly legalistic culture. In fact, for a thousand years, they had been told, this is how you relate to God, and it's through the law. Don't do the don'ts, and make sure you do all of the do's. As long as you don't do the things you shouldn't do, and you do do the things you should do, you and God are in great shape. That's what they had been taught. And so they knew everything, my, my whole approach to God is this legalistic stance. Have I done enough good things or avoided enough bad things? But here was the thing that they knew. There are some traps that come with legalism. Legalism back then in the first century and legalism as it exists today in the church, there's some traps that come along with legalism. And one of the ones that Jesus knew, and I believe he was speaking to here, is if you came from a legalistic church, if you have a legalistic view of your, your approach to God, you have to create loopholes. You have to, to many different points go, okay, the word of God says this, but it didn't really mean that. I know that we shouldn't ever do this, but it's okay for me to do it now because of my situation. And we begin to rationalize and to make loopholes so that it's okay for me not to do something the Lord said to do, or it's okay for me to do something the Lord said not to do, because it's the only way in a legalistic culture that we can get around, like, God still wants to be with me, and it's okay that I'm with him. We have to rationalize the fact that we, we don't live up to the law, and, and this is an aside. It also leads to comparison, because here's the thing. I will rationalize and make loopholes for myself. I will not afford you the same thing. I have a good reason for why I didn't do that thing, but look at them over there. How dare they not do that? It always leads to this comparison, I'm better, they're worse, because I give myself grace. I give myself loopholes and ways out. I don't afford that same grace to other people. It's a very nasty, vicious cycle, and these people were caught in that cycle. And Jesus was calling to them. They, they had had to create loopholes when it came to things that they had promised to do. And so what they did is they had these hierarchy of promises. There was a promise that I make to you, person to person, but here's the thing. Any of those promises could be trumped by another promise I make to God. There, there's a spot later where Jesus comes and he's calling the Pharisees to task and he says, God has called every man to care for his parents as they get older, he said, but you've created a loophole where instead they can say, but I promised all of my time and money to the temple. It was a thing called Corbin. And that lets me out of having to care for my parents. And Jesus goes, you're, you're ignoring something clear in scripture because you created this loophole, but I promised it to the, the temple. And so now I don't have to do the thing that God is calling me to do. Here, I, I will be at your house to help you with this thing on this date. Oop, actually, you know what? 
I actually promised the Lord that if he gave me a good harvest this year, I'd go to Jerusalem and sacrifice an animal, so I'm not coming and doing that thing at your house because obviously my promise to God takes precedence. You, you see, is this making sense? I get a lot of blank stares right now. So they had created these loopholes where now I don't have to keep my word anymore because I just made a greater promise instead. They, they even had this hierarchy of things that they would swear by. No, I, I swear to you by the altar in the temple that I will do this thing. Well, something else came up and I swore to them by the gold in the temple treasury that I would do something different and the gold is worth more than the altar and so I have to do that thing, I can't do your thing anymore. And it seems silly, but this is the way that they lived. You could never fully know where you stood with somebody else. Did they really mean what they said? Have they changed their minds since and just promised somebody else, but using a greater promise instead. Therefore, you can't count on one another. You can't really trust one another. One oath trumped a previous oath, and in air quotes, released them from their responsibilities. This was the way that they lived. But here's, here's the issue. Can you imagine if this was how God treated us? If we read something in his word where God promises something to us and we had to go, well, hold on, but has he changed his mind since? Did he say something later that negates this one and calls us to do something different? Or, okay, he's not actually going to live up to that promise because something different came along. Can you imagine the uncertainty of having to walk with this God? It would be a terrible place to be. Can I really trust him to do what he says he's going to do? to fulfill his promises. Here's the thing, God is calling us to be like him. Can you imagine reading a passage and going, wait, 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 is he just saying it or is he swearing it? Which one is it? Well, what did he swear by? Is there something greater he could swear by later? This is not the God that we serve and therefore this is not the kind of people that God is calling us to be. Instead, we serve a God. The author of Hebrews says this in chapter 13. Jesus Christ, you guys know this one, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He is not like shifting shadows. Where is he going to be today? What's his stance on this thing going to be? Is he going to come through or not? Jesus, and our God in heaven, lives by my yes is yes and my no is no. If I say I will do it, I will do it. If I say no, then it's a no. He is a God of integrity, and he is calling this new kingdom people to be people of integrity. Not having to weigh these oaths and promises, and can I really count? Did they really mean it? Am I just waiting for something better to come along? Like, and so he tells them, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all, back in verse 34. Either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by the earth because it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your, your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black. Jesus was kind of looking at him going, why are you swearing by all of these things that aren't yours and you have no control over anyway? If I came up to Shelton and be like, Shelton, I swear by all the gold in the temple, you can count on me, I'll be there. If I'm not there, does he get to go collect all the gold in the temple? Of course not. They, they were, it was just words. It didn't mean anything. And Jesus goes, what are you doing? None of this is even yours. I don't swear. I don't go to the bank and go, I will pay my mortgage or you can have my neighbor's house. 
they would laugh me out of the place. And Jesus goes, this is exactly what you're doing. None of this belongs to you. What, are you, what games are you even playing? Later, James, in James chapter 4, says this, Come now, you who say, and this is about promises that they would make to each other, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and we will spend a year there and do business and make a profit. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. You are like smoke that appears for a little while then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord lives, we will live and do this or do that. This isn't about making oaths and swearing by these things that like, have you ever had like, well, oh, he swore to God, like, He's serious now. It's foolishness. You don't control anything. You're, you're smoke. You're a vapor. You have no idea what tomorrow will bring. So James is actually telling them, be careful what you promise people because you're not in control. But instead to go, hey, if the Lord wills, we'll be there. As, basically, as far as it concerns me, I'm going to live up to the promise that I make. I'm going to do the thing I say I'm going to do, but I also understand I'm not in control. If you're hearing this and thinking, oh, good, I, I found a loophole. I can just tell people, if the Lord wills, I'll show up and help you move this weekend. And then I don't have to go, and I can just go, I guess he didn't will. Sorry. Like, this is not the, the silliness that we're called to. But Jesus says, but let your word yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. No more loopholes. Yes is yes, no is no. Here's the problem. Am I going to be able to live with perfect integrity? Is, is every yes actually going to mean yes? Am I going to be able to do everything I promised to do? A few of you get, the ones that know me best are shaking their heads no. The rest of you are being very polite. No, I'm not. Uh-oh. So what do I do? How do I? Listen, this calls for humility. My yes is yes. With everything I can do, I'm going to be at the places I say I'm going to be. I'm going to do the things I say I'm going to do. I'm going to stay away from the things that I say no to, that I, that I agree are wrong. My yes is yes and my no is no. And when I fail, it takes humility. I apologize. I come back and I say, hey, you know what? I don't make excuses. I don't come and go, well, yeah, but something better came along. But hey, I said I would be there and I wasn't. I'm sorry. That's not the kind of person that I want to be, will you forgive me? We have to own it. We have to be people of integrity. Listen, it's a huge sign of integrity for some, when someone apologizes for not having integrity. Like, do you, do you see that? The people that just show up all the time, we go, cool, they're trustworthy. The people that come up and go, look, I told you to be there and I wasn't, I'm, I'm sorry. I trust that person now. That person is showing me integrity. No more loopholes. Listen, growing up, or not when I was growing up, when my kids were growing up, they all go through that phase where they're like, hey, Dad, will you be here at this thing? And I'm like, yeah, I'll be there. Do you pinky promise? Listen, I would tell my kids, no, because I don't pinky promise. When, when I tell you I'll be somewhere, I will be there. When I tell you I'm going to do something, I will do it. I wanted them to know, you don't need a promise from me. You don't need a was he serious, was he not. My yes is yes, and there was also times when I had to go, this is hard, but no, I won't be able to do that. I've already promised somebody else. I already have to do something else, and I have to be man enough or woman enough, in your case, to say, no, I can't do that. Like, that's a hard thing. That's a humbling thing. 
but I wanted my kids to know from day one that when their dad says yes, he means it. And when he says no, he means it. And have there been times when I had to go to them and apologize? Hey, I told you I would be there and I wasn't. I'm so sorry. Yeah, like those aren't fun conversations. But I wanted my children to know that their dad was a man of integrity. So we don't promise, we don't swear on this. We're, yes is yes and no is no. And I hold them to that same standard. Is this making sense, church? Okay. So Jesus goes on from there into his next teaching, and he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So listen, again, Jesus is coming, going, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Basically, get even. Get revenge. And listen, when it says you've heard that it was said here, that was actually a misteaching. The, the spot in Leviticus where it says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, is a judicial matter. He's telling judges, don't be corrupt. Don't take bargains. Don't have favorites. But instead, if one guy's bull gores another guy's bull, he, owns it, he owes him a bull. Eye for eye. It was in a legal term. It wasn't, this is how you're supposed to act towards your neighbor, towards your family member. It was as a legal system. Because listen, there has to be rules. There has to be, this is the penalty for doing this on a like, national scale, on a legal scale. But we're going to see here in a minute, from the very beginning, the Old Testament call was never get revenge. This was a misteaching that they had had. And Jesus goes, look, the, revenge is the wrong goal. You've heard it said eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. Let me ask you, is Jesus telling us in this that it's wrong to defend ourselves? Is he not? Don't resist an evildoer. Put that passage back up for me, Chris, just so I can see it. Is Jesus telling us it's wrong to defend ourselves? In this, somebody's getting smacked in the face. What's he telling them to do? It's right there. Offer them the other one. Doesn't say grab their hand. Doesn't say stop them from hitting you again. Doesn't say stand up to the bully. Says turn and offer the other one. Don't even resist an evildoer. Okay, somebody's suing you. And listen, it's unfair. It's wrong. They're trying to take something that's yours. What does Jesus say? Fight them. Get a good lawyer. What's he say? Don't just give them the shirt they're suing you for. Give them your coat as well. What, what if the other person is obviously wrong? What if it's unfair? Here's the thing. This is an unpopular teaching because this teaching is incredibly un-American. Incredibly un-American. It's offensive to us as Americans. Our gut reaction, even though this passage clearly says, offer them the other cheek, give them even more than they were asking for, go the other mile, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Our gut reaction was to go, no, you defend yourself. Don't resist an evildoer. Like, don't even resist them. 
that, it feels so American. It's offensive to me as I read this. It's easy to see, we try to put ourselves in the shoes of if I was a first century Jewish person, like why'd they get so mad at Jesus? We try to go back and go, oh, this would have been offensive to them because he was saying things that were against Judaism, against their, what they thought the culture God had given them. And so they got angry and they got offended and they turned and they walked away. But we tend to go, but we're more enlightened than them. But, but we get it more than them. Here's the thing, if Jesus came today, 21st century America, he would use different illustrations. They would probably be less farming illustrations. He'd come here and it would be more about hunting and blue collar illustrations or whatever. But he would say things that would be equally offensive to us. Because he says, look, I'm not coming to help you and your nation. I'm instead coming to build a kingdom that is above nations. And this kingdom at times will offend your culture. This is an offensive statement to us as Americans. America was built on defend yourself. Throw off injustice. And listen, on a national level, again, from a legal precedent, like God hates injustice. We see so much of that. But he says, listen, in a personal relationship, when someone would come and slap you in the face, listen, it doesn't say punch you in the face, slapped in the face. Does it hurt to get slapped in the face? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's unpleasant, correct? But even more so, it's disrespectful. Honestly, a man, and I'm going to speak very generally, we would rather be punched in the face than slapped. To be slapped is like, you didn't even respect me enough to punch me? Are you kidding me? You think I'm weak enough that like a slap? What? <laughs> But what Jesus says, when you are disrespected, turn and offer them the other one also. Don't defend yourself. Don't put them in their place. Don't offer them the other one as well. When when injustice comes to your door personally and they're, they're suing you for your very shirt, you know what, if it's that important to you, why don't you take my coat too? Wait, 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 you're going to choose generosity in the face of someone wrongfully suing you? Are you kidding me? Don't resist an evildoer. Turn the other cheek. Give them your shirt as well. If anyone forces you to go a mile, go with them too. There was this Roman law that said any Roman soldier could at any point in time grab anyone they wanted and say, carry my stuff for a mile. I don't want to carry my own stuff. You carry it for a mile. And because Rome was in charge, people legally had to, like under penalty of death, carry whatever the Roman soldier told them to for one mile. At the end of that mile, they were legally released. They could drop it on the floor and go back to what they were doing. You see the injustice there. That is unfair. That is an improper use of power. But Jesus said, look, at the end of that mile, don't throw their stuff down. Carry it a second mile that you are not legally obligated to, that they don't even have a right to ask of you, but go the extra mile. That's where that saying comes from, if you've heard it. Carry this unjust burden a second mile as a way to show them you're not a part of this earth's kingdom. There is something different about you. You will generously carry their unjust burden an extra mile than you have to. Jesus is calling his followers, hear me, 
to treat others the way that he treats us. Have you ever slapped God in the face? Yes, you have. Again, the slap is not a physical, it's a disrespect. It's an I'm better than you. It's a I'm in charge. Have you ever treated God in this way? Did he destroy you as he could have easily? No, but instead he turns and he offers us his other cheek. Have you ever wrongfully accused God, you know, taken him to court? You did me wrong. You owe me. You have. I have. And did he bring a better lawyer and destroy us as he obviously could have? Nope. Instead, he just kept pouring out more grace than we deserved. Have you ever tried to put on God an unjust burden? You owe me. Do this for me. Does he slap our hand away? No. We take advantage of our Father every day. That's what grace is. Undeserved, unearned favor from him. We do the wrong thing and he pours out forgiveness and grace on us. More than we deserve. And the point that Jesus is making in the Sermon on the Mount is not just do these things because I don't know why. Because listen, your father doesn't hold anger in his heart against you. Your father doesn't lie to you, doesn't tell you one thing and do another. Your father doesn't give you what you actually deserve. Instead, he pours out grace on you. He offers you another chance. He goes the second mile with you, even when you don't deserve it. And you are to be like your father in heaven. You are to treat others as your father in heaven treats you. Don't just let them off the hook. He doesn't just say, look, revenge is bad. Don't seek revenge. But he goes even further. Instead, don't even resist them. Offer them even more than they're demanding of you. Be as gracious to them as your father is gracious to you. Things are relatively quiet. We're going to call that a stunned silence because of what Jesus is doing. Okay. We must learn, and here's, here's the hard part. Here's what's really at stake. If we're going to do this, we have to learn to trust our Father to provide for us and to defend us. Because here's what happens. In those situations where you've been slapped in the face, where you've been wrongfully accused, and we go, I got to stop him. I got to defend myself. I got to defend my honor, my name. My... Here's the thing. I promise you this. Your Father in heaven will do a better job at defending you than you ever could. But what if they take what I have, what I value? Your Father in heaven will do a better job at providing for your every need than you will for yourself. Do you trust him enough to do it his way? Listen, I don't think in any of these situations he was going, the person was rightfully slapped in the face. I think in all of these, it's this wrongful, who, who are these Romans to come in here and try to force me to do this? In every one of those, these people were being wrongfully treated just like Jesus is, and honestly, just like we treat our Father at times. But grace was the response that they got. If you're going to be a part of this new kingdom thing that your Father is doing, then you have to be like the King. And the King doesn't respond in kind. He doesn't get even. He doesn't turn and strike back. He instead offers grace and forgiveness. And listen, Christian, this is good news 
We should be celebrating this. It's hard what Jesus is calling us to do, but we have the best model the world has ever seen in the way that our Heavenly Father keeps calling us back in, even when we spit in his face. We have to learn to trust our Father to defend and provide for us. He will do a better job than you could ever hope to. And Jesus continues this same thought. Matthew 5, 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, we just went through what you do on the outside. Okay, carry the thing an extra mile. Give them my coat. Let them slap me in the face. Those are actions. Those are things that I can do, and I can even do very grudgingly. I know they're the right thing to do, but I'm like, go ahead, slap me again. Who do you think you are? No, 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 take my coat too. You probably need it where you're going. (laughs) I can grumble through every single one of those. I can do it right. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He goes, but what's happening in your heart? You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends out rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward would you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Real quick, I'd like to point out, Matthew was a tax collector. That one had to be like, whoa, Jesus. (laughs) I mean, I don't know about them, but you knew I was here. Like, come on, man. Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. But be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So again, it seems like Jesus is giving a new command. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. This has actually been taught to you. You guys think that this is the way that God is calling you to approach the world, but it's actually not true. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This might be the hardest one out of all of these. To to pray for those who are actually hurting you, who are persecuting you, who are against you simply because of who you are and what you believe. Don't hate them. That's what the Gentiles do. That's what the world naturally does. But instead, to pray for them. And listen, they would have heard this and they would have been like, no, 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 no. But we've always been told, hate our enemies because it's about Israel and it's about, and and everyone else we should hate and we should war against and we should, because we're God's chosen people. But in Leviticus 19, you must not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your own community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Real quick, why does he say, I am Yahweh, there at the end? I'm in charge, is what he's saying. This is how you're to live with one another, and don't forget, I am God. This is my word to you. Not to harbor hatred. Again, we've, we've looked at this. Jesus said, not just murder, but don't, don't hate your brother. Don't have anger against your heart and your brother. Don't even hate your enemies. This is taking this and redefining it. Because they would have heard it and they would have gone, yeah, he says neighbor a lot there. That means Jewish brother, right? I don't, there's a very famous teaching Jesus had on who is your neighbor. Maybe you guys have heard it. But he was going to set them straight on that here very soon. Your neighbor is not just people that look like you and act like you and are easy to get along with. Your neighbor is everyone that God has placed around you. 
You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. If you're going to be a part of this kingdom thing that God is doing, then you need to be like the king. That's the entire point. This wasn't this set of rules of God lives this one way, but he's telling you to do that instead. This is the way God treats those he loves and those who persecute him, who hurt him, who slap him. He pours out grace. He pours out blessing. And we're to be the same kind of people as our Father in heaven. Jesus said this about himself when they came to him and said, why do you do the things that you do, Jesus? Then Jesus replied, I assure you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does these things in the same way. The Father does not hate his enemies. The Father, he's not up there wringing his hands going, I can't wait to get even with them. The Father instead pours out blessing, even on his enemies. And he says, if you are going to be, that word sons there really just means children. So women, you're not off the hook here. If you're going to be sons and daughters of the king, then you have to live in the same way the king lives. Your heart has to be in the same posture as the king's heart. So that you can be sons of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For a lot of years, until honestly just like a few months ago, I read this passage completely wrong. I always kind of read it out of context. I just read, God causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous, sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And I always took it as like, good days and bad days are a crapshoot. Everybody has good days. Everybody has bad days. It was kind of a get on with it. It doesn't mean that if you have a bad day, God's punishing you. And if you have a good day, like, oh, good, you did something right. I always thought Jesus was just going, look, everybody has good days and bad days. But when you read it in context here, he's actually saying something very different. God models for us how to love those who hate us. He goes, look, I don't just send rain on the ones that love me. I also send rain, and rain was a blessing for them. They lived in the desert and were trying to grow crops. I send rain even on those who hate me. Even on those who are unrighteous, I still act in grace and blessing toward them. I cause the sun to rise not just on those who make me happy, not just on those who get it right, I also cause the sun to rise on those who are actively against me. He was saying, be like your father who blesses even those who are cursing him. He gives them sunshine in its time. He gives them rain in its time. Why? Because he is gracious and loving even towards those who hate him. Is this making sense, church? He models for us how to love and bless our enemies. God always leads the way when he calls. God will never call you to do something he's never done or to live in a way that he has never lived. He always leads in the way that he calls. He says, bless those who persecute you just like I do. Give more than they're even asking for just like I do. Verse 47 For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? 
Don't even the tax collectors do the same. Tax collectors were, were seen as like vermin. They were traitors to Israel. They were like, ugh, the, the lowest of the low. And he goes, look, even they get that. Somebody loves you, you love them back. You get no reward for that. There's nothing different about that. If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? The Gentiles were maybe even a little bit lower than tax collectors at the time. They were kind of the dogs. That's how they were referred to often. And he says, look, even they get, somebody loves you, you love them back. Somebody greets you, you greet them back. Even they get that. That's not out of the ordinary, but I'm not calling you to ordinary. God is not calling us to react naturally, but supernaturally. Here is what the world expects. We're nice to people that are nice to us. We're mean to people that are mean to us. What are they going to do when we're even nice to people that are mean to us? That is out of the ordinary. The world will stand up and take notice. They will recognize that this king and his kingdom are not like anything that they have ever seen before. And these are the kind of people that God is trying to call us to be, that the kingdom is trying to create us to be. And then he goes to a really shocking statement. He's made a few of these already. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You can almost imagine the stunned silence in the crowd. Okay, look, at first we were with him and we were like, oh, cool, maybe I could do that. And then we were kind of mad at him, like, who does this guy think he is? And now we just go, what? Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In Jewish culture, they couldn't even say the name of God. They had to come up with all these other ways to refer to him because he was so perfect, he was so holy, they weren't even worthy to speak his name or to write his name. They had like shorthand for it. Because to write it fully was like, whoa, who do I think I am? And now Jesus goes, be perfect just like him. Stunned silence. This word perfect that Jesus used, in the Greek it means complete, lacking nothing, fully mature. It, it has the idea of an accomplished goal. I'm done. I'm finished. I did everything I set out to do. I am complete. And he says, be that just like your father is that. Lack nothing just like your heavenly father lacks nothing. If you are perfect like him, if you are complete, you will accomplish everything I've told you to do. They're like, oh, how easy is that? Let's look at what Jesus has just told them to do. You've heard it said, but I tell you, don't murder. In fact, don't even harbor anger in your heart. Okay, that's a tough one. I'll, I'll, I'll work on that. Okay, Jesus. Don't commit adultery. In fact, don't even lust in your heart after things that aren't yours. Okay, that's a little harder, Jesus, but okay, I'll work on that. Don't break your oaths. And listen, in this, it includes your oaths of marriage. He, he dealt with divorce in there, but he also says the oaths that you make to your neighbor. In fact, don't even swear oaths at all. Let every yes you utter be yes and every no you utter be no. Okay, Jesus, you're, you're starting to get away from me a little bit here. I'm still back on the anger piece, but like, okay. Don't pursue revenge. In fact, don't even defend yourselves when you're harmed wrongfully. Don't just love your neighbor. In fact, love and bless even your enemies and do it perfectly. 
do all of that and you'll be perfect like your father in heaven. They would have been like, why did we even walk out here? This is impossible. What, he wants us to do something completely impossible. Do all of this and then you will be children of your father in heaven. Do all of this and you will be perfect like him. That's the kind of righteousness that it takes to be a part of the kingdom of God. Everyone, you can almost just see the backs of the crowd starts turning and walking away. Maybe this wasn't for us. It's too much. It's too far. The things you said will take a lifetime to even get better at, let alone do them perfectly. It's, it's impossible and it's completely out of reach for us. And listen, were they right? 100%. They would have heard do it perfectly and thought this is impossible and they would have been right. Can we ever do these things perfectly, church? Can we ever be perfectly, like have perfect integrity? No. We're going to let people down. We're going to lie. We're going to respond in anger. We're going to gossip. Many of us have already done those things this morning. And Jesus has the audacity to say, be perfect as your father is perfect? And this is where the good news comes in. These people would have been going, if that's it, we're done for. But Jesus wasn't done. That's where the good news comes in of communion. The thing that we celebrate at the communion table, Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But there's some, some subtext now that we know the rest of the story. But you're not going to be able to do it so I'll do it for you. Who's the only human being to ever live perfectly on this earth? Jesus Christ. And what kind of death did he die? Quiet one in his sleep as a perfect person should have? No. He died a sinner's death. There's a passage, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's often referred to as the great exchange. You hear me teach on this a lot if you've been here before. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't go, okay, you've earned it, now here you go. He said it was impossible for you to earn, so I earned it for you. I, who had no sin, became sin, died the death that sin deserves, tortured, beaten, crucified, so that you would never have to. And every righteous act I ever did is credited to your account. I took all of your debt and I gave you all the riches of my righteousness in return. You didn't earn it. You never could have. It was a gift towards those who didn't deserve it. Does that sound familiar? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When God looks at you and me, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he sees the righteous perfection he was looking for. Not because of what you've done, but because of what you've received. You have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. And when God looks at you, he sees the perfection of Jesus. You now have a right to the kingdom of God. You are now able to stand in right relationship with your heavenly father. 
By doing so, you'll be sons of your Father in heaven. Okay, it was impossible for you to do it, so I earned it for you. Now you are sons and daughters of the Most High King, because when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Mick, can you go get the children's church people? I'd ask them to come back in. Thank you. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 10 where the author of Hebrews tries to capture this. He says, For by one sacrifice, Jesus' death on the cross for us, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I love the, they, they call it yet, not yet. When God looks at you, he sees the perfection of Jesus, even though you are still a work in progress. You heard this today or over the last couple weeks, there has been something in this, you've heard it said, but I tell you, where if you're honest, there was some conviction and you were going, oh, I really struggle with that. I'm not yet perfect at that. And God goes, when I look at you because of what Jesus did, I see you as perfect. Now let's get up and keep moving towards it. We have this position of perfection that's been given to us by our big brother. And now we have to work it out in our daily life. We have to confess and repent and, and try to allow the spirit to lead us in some of these areas. We're not yet perfect practically. But when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of Jesus. Is this making sense, church? So before we come and take communion as a way to respond, I'm going to put this, this challenge out there first. If you hear me talking about this perfection that you've been given, when the Father looks at you, he sees perfection. John Hughes, a month or so ago, taught, and he taught from Ephesians 2.10, when it says that we are God's masterpiece, handcrafted by the king, and he sees us as his perfect masterpiece. If when I talk about this, there's something in you that goes, eh, not me, maybe them. Maybe they've got this figured out, but I know what I've been like this morning. If there's something in you, where it's guilt and shame that is keeping you from embracing the perfection the Father has given you, that perfect relationship. It says that we have the right uh, over in Hebrews to walk boldly into the throne room of grace. Why? Because he sees us as perfect. If you struggle to apply that to yourself, then I'm going to ask you to take a minute before you come to communion. Listen, to repent of that. And it sounds weird to repent of because like, but I didn't do anything wrong. I just struggle to believe it. Repent is not just say sorry. Repent is a change of thinking, turning 180 degrees. I see myself as this guilty, shameful, unworthy to go before the Father. The Father sees me as perfectly welcome. Who am I going to believe? Do I think I know better than him? Listen, oftentimes we do. Let's repent. Lord, I choose to trust your word that says I am perfectly welcome, even though I'm still being made holy. I'm still in process. But you say because of what Jesus did, you see me as spotless, blameless, shameless, guiltless, and worthy to come before you. Because listen, to come and to take communion and go, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I'm almost worthy. If I could just get a couple other things ironed out, that's a slap in his face. He came and he took it all. Every bit of your sin, every bit of your shame, every bit of your guilt, 
He took it from you and he put on you every bit of his righteousness and perfection so that you can come and stand boldly before your heavenly father and say, thank you for the gift that you have given me. There's no half measures. We can't come and thank him for what he did and go, it was almost good enough, Jesus. May it never be. So if that's you this morning and you're going, I don't know, does he actually even want me to come? Does he actually even like me? Because I'm so far from that perfect he called me to. He knows. And he took care of it. Do you trust him? Do you trust the work that he did in your place on the cross? Because if so, let's come and let's celebrate it. There is nothing between us and our Father. For those of us who are in Christ, there is nothing between us. We've been invited to come. If you're in a spot this morning, and this is something we talk about every time we do communion, where you have some harbored sin, some of the things that he's been convicting you of that you're going, I just, I don't know if I want to deal with it then there's still something between you and your king, but it's because you're putting it there. He's calling you to let those things go, to repent and to turn from your sin for your own good so that nothing holds you back from coming to him. Will you allow him? If he's putting his finger on something in your life, he's calling it sin, will you agree with him? Will you repent, turn from your sin and offer it to him? He offers blessing, forgiveness, wholeness, healing, relationship in its place if we will just turn it over to him. So before we come forward, I'd like to just spend a few minutes in silence, as we often do, just asking the Lord, is there anything between you and me? Is there any sin that you're putting your hand on that I I need to turn over to you? If so, do business with him now. Is there any hesitation in your heart? Did it really take for me? Did did he really give me perfection and righteousness because I feel ashamed to give your shame to him? Lord, I trust you with it. You said I'm free of this and I trust you. Once you're in that place, I'm going to invite the music team to go ahead and come up. We're going to sing through a couple songs and there's a couple different ways to respond. One is if you need to, to put some feet to what the Lord is doing and to come forward here to the steps just to pray with the Lord. I've also asked David and Cindy Fox if they will come over here. If you need someone to pray with you, if, if, if there's something going on in your life, you need anointed for healing. You need, there's an area where you just, you're stuck and you need a brother or sister to just pray with you to come over here to this side and they would be happy to anoint you and to pray with you. If you need to go and make it right with somebody in this room, leave your gift at the altar and go and be made right with your brother before you offer your sacrifice, Jesus teaching be made right so that we can come as a people free of guilt, free of shame, nothing held back from our Father, and we can celebrate the gift that he has given us, his death and his resurrection on our behalf. Amen, church? So let's spend a few minutes in silence just allowing the Lord to examine our hearts.